Illustrations of Bible Truth By H. A. Ironside, Lit. D. Moody Press Chicago Copyright, 1945 Preface I think it was Charles H. Spurgeon who said, The sermon is the house, the illustrations are the windows that let in the light. Whether this remark was original with him or not, it is very true and deserves to be kept in mind and practically applied by those who would preach the word in compelling power. Some object to the use of anecdotes of any kind in preaching and teaching, and think all that is needed is the unfolding of the truth. But most minds are so constituted that they need illustrations to enable them readily to grasp the full import of the message. Our Lord Himself used this method continually and in this, as in other things, He has left us an example, that ye should follow His steps. At the request of valued friends, I have grouped together here many stories and incidents which have served me well throughout a long ministry and which I hope may be used to advantage by others. Many are from my own personal experience and will not be found in the collections of other writers. Some, however, have been used in my books on various subjects. Others are now printed for the first time. I send them forth to the glory of him who has been to me for over half a century, a wonderful Savior and a faithful friend, my ever-adorable Lord Jesus Christ. H. A. Ironside, Chicago, Illinois Doubtful Things He that doubteth is condemned if he eat, Romans 14 verse 23, R. V. Sandy was a thrifty Scot who objected to needless laundry expense, so when he wore a dress shirt to a banquet, he put it away carefully for future use. On one occasion when dressing for such an event, he took a used shirt out of the drawer and examined it with care, hoping to be able to wear it that evening. Not being quite sure of its strict cleanliness, he took it to a window, where he was looking it over under a better light than the room afforded. His wife, Jean, noticed him shaking his head as though fearful that it would not pass careful scrutiny. Remember, Sandy, she called to him, if it's doubtful, it's dirty. That settled it. The shirt went into the discard and another, a fresh one, took its place. Jean's words may well speak to every believer concerning things about which conscience raises any question whatsoever. Discerning Love That your love may abound, in all discernment, fill 1 9, literal translation. Lack of discernment often accounts for the failure of those in the pew to realize the full import of unsound teaching from the pulpit. A brilliant modernistic preacher, who had pleased his audience with flowery oratory and beautiful perorations, as he discoursed glibly of the importance of breadth of view and the danger of bigoted opinions, was bidding farewell to his congregation as he was about to leave them for a new parish. One of his young men approached him and said, Pastor, I am so sorry we are losing you. Before you came I was one who did not care for God, man, or the devil, but through your delightful sermons, I have learned to love them all. This is mere sentimentality, not discerning love. Evil Communications Evil Communications Corrupt Good Manners, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 Roaming in the woods, some boys found a nest containing two linnet fledglings, which they managed to capture and take home. Securing some plain, wooden birdcages, they put one of the linnets in each and hung them on either side of a canary. They explained to their mother that they hoped the linnets, being so young, would learn to imitate the canary, instead of cheaping as linnets ordinarily do. The mother smilingly questioned the likelihood of the plan succeeding. The next day, the boys entered the room and exclaimed, Mother, come here, our canary is cheeping like a linnet. And so it was. The canary had to be separated from the wild birds of the wood and kept under cover for a time before he regained his song. Surely there is a lesson here for all Christians. Fellowship with the world does not lead the godless to take the way of the Lord, but generally results in the believer losing his joyous song and taking on the speech and manners of the world. He did his part. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19 verse 10. That man is an utterly lost sinner who could never find his own way back to God, is a very unpalatable truth for the average natural man or woman. We all like to think there is something we can do to help save ourselves, whereas, according to God's word we are not only lost, but without ability to retrieve our condition. 
It is remarkable how apt the colored folks are in quick illustrations of spiritual realities, as the following instance will show. A recent convert, a colored man, rose in a meeting to give his testimony to the saving grace of God. He told how the Lord had won his heart and given deliverance from the guilt and power of sin. He spoke of Christ and his work, but said nothing of any efforts of his own. The leader of the meeting was of a legalistic turn of mind, and when the Negro's testimony was ended, he said, Our brother has only told us of the Lord's part in his salvation. When I was converted there was a whole lot I had to do myself before I could expect the Lord to do anything for me. Brother, didn't you do your part first before God did his? The other was on his feet again in an instant and replied, Yes, saw, a clear done forgot. I didn't tell you about my part, did I? Well, I did my part for over thirty years, running away from God as fast as ever my sins could carry me. That was my part. And God took after me till he run me down. That was his part. It was well put and tells the story that every redeemed sinner understands. Help those women. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women. Phil, 4 3. He was unschooled, and trying to give a word of exhortation. He fumbled through the opening verses of Philippians 4, but became confused over the names of the two women referred to in verse 2, and so he read, I beseech Odius and I beseech Suntachi that they be of the same mind in the Lord. He then proceeded to attempt an application of the truth according to the names as he had misunderstood them. How much trouble is made among Christians by women like Odius, who are so unpleasant to get on with, and Suntachi, who get offended over every little trifle. The application was good, though the interpretation was faulty. Passing Trials our light affliction, which is, but for a moment, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. He was a very illiterate Negro, who could only spell his way through the Bible with great effort and often failed to grasp the full import of the passages he tried to read. Rising to his feet in a testimony meeting where the leader had called upon each one to give his favorite portion of scripture, the aged, colored brother said, I gets more help from dem breastwords and it came to pass than anything else in the Bible. Asked what he meant, he explained, when I is so upset with trouble and pestered with trials, I goes to the Bible, and begins to read, and I never goes far before I come across dem words, it came to pass and I says, breast de laud. It didn't come to stay. It come to pass. Surely we may all learn from his simple faith. Lost in the church. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3. In an English village a Sunday school entertainment was being held in a small church. The place was crowded and in darkness as a stereopticon exhibition was being given. A knock at the door summoned an usher who made his way to the front and announced, Little Mary Jones is lost. Her family and the town officers have been searching everywhere for her. If anyone has seen her or knows of her whereabouts, will he please go to the door and communicate with the friend who was inquiring? No one moved and the lecturer went on with his address and pictures. At the close, when the lights were turned on, a lady noticed Mary sitting on a front seat. Going over to her, she said, Why, Mary, didn't you hear them inquiring for you? Why did you not let them know you were here? Surprised, the child asked, Did they mean me? They said Mary Jones was lost. I am not lost. I knew where I was all the time, I thought it was some other Mary Jones. She was lost in the church and did not know it. How many others are like her? They have a name that they live, but are dead. Though members of some local church, they have never seen their need of Christ, nor have they believed the message of the gospel. The Offer of the Irish Landlord He told you, and ye believe not, John 10 verse 25. The unwillingness of the human heart to rely on the promise of grace in Christ Jesus is well illustrated in the story of an eccentric Irish landlord on whose vast estates dwelt a number of very needy tenants. Upon becoming converted, this wealthy man was anxious to make clear to these people the marvelous provision God had made for their salvation. 
so he caused to be posted in prominent places on his wide domains, notices to the effect that, on a given day, he would be in his office down by the lodge gates, from 10 o'clock in the morning until 12 noon. During that time, he would be prepared to pay the debts of all his tenantry who brought their unpaid bills with them. For days the notices were the cause of much excitement. People talked of the strange offer and some declared it a hoax. Others were certain there must be a catch somewhere. A few even thought it indicated that the landlord was going out of his mind, for who had ever heard of any sane man making such an offer? When the announced day came, many of the people could be seen making their way to the office, and as the time approached a great crowd had gathered about the door. Promptly at ten the landlord and his secretary drove to the gate, left the carriage and, without a word to anyone, entered the office and closed the door. Outside a great discussion had begun, it became more vehement every minute. Was there anything to it? Did he really mean it? Would he only make a fool of one who brought the evidence of his indebtedness? Some insisted that it was his actual signature at the foot of the notices, and surely he would not dishonor his name. But an hour passed and no one had gone in to present his claim. If one suggested to someone else to venture, he would be met by the angry response, I don't owe so very much. I have no need to go in. Let someone else try it first, someone who owes more than I do. And so the precious moments slipped away. Finally, when it was nearing twelve o'clock, an aged couple from the farthest bounds of the estate came hobbling along arm in arm, the old man had a bundle of bills clutched tightly in one hand. In quavering tones he inquired. Is it true, neighbor, that the landlord be paying the debts of all who come today? He ain't paid none yet, said one. We think it is just a cruel joke, said another. The old couple's eyes filled with tears. Is it all a mistake? We hoped it was true and thought how good it would be to be able to die free of debt. They were turning disconsolately away, when somebody said, no one has tried him yet. Why not go in? If he pays your bills, come out quickly and tell us and we'll go in, too. To this the old folks agreed and timidly opened the door and entered the office, where a cordial welcome awaited them. In answer to their question as to whether the notice was true, the secretary said. Do you think the landlord would deceive you? Let me see your bills. They were all presented, carefully tabulated, and a check made out to cover them. Overwhelmed with gratitude, the old man and his wife arose to leave, but the secretary said. Just be seated. You must remain here till the office closes at noon. They explained that the crowd outside was waiting for verification from them of the strange offer. But the landlord said, no, you took me at my word. They must do the same if they want their debts paid. And so the minutes passed. Outside, the people moved restlessly about, watching the closed door, but none lifted the latch. At high noon the door opened and the old folks came out first. Did he keep his word? the throng asked. Yes, neighbors. Here is his check and it's good as gold. Why didn't you come out and tell us? angrily asked many. He said we must wait inside and you must come as we did and take him at his word. A moment later the landlord and his secretary came out and hurried to the carriage, the crowd pressing about them, holding out hands full of personal bills, and crying, won't you do for us as you did for those folks? But rising in his carriage, the landlord said, it is too late now. I gave you every opportunity. I would have paid for you all, but you would not believe me. Then he likened the events of the morning to the way men treat God's offer to free the sinner of all that divine justice has against him. Solemnly he warned them of the folly of passing up so great salvation until the day of grace was over and it was too late to be saved. God's Blessed Man Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, Psalms 1 verse 1. I was very much impressed, a number of years ago, as I listened to Joseph Flax tell of his visit to Palestine. When he was in the city of Jerusalem he was given the opportunity of addressing quite a gathering of Jews and Arabs, all of whom were presumably unconverted. For his text, Mr. Flax took the first psalm. Of course, he could repeat it to them in the Hebrew. 
He dwelt upon the tenses, Blessed is the man who hath not walked in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stood in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seat of the scornful. He said to them, Now, my brethren, who is this blessed man of whom the psalmist speaks? Notice, this happy man is a man who never walked in the counsel of the ungodly, he never stood in the way of sinners, he never sat in the seat of the scornful. He was an absolutely sinless man. Who is this blessed man? When no one answered, Joseph Flax said, Shall we say he is our great father Abraham? Is it Father Abraham that the psalmist is speaking of here? One old Jew said, No, no, it cannot be Abraham, for he denied his wife, he told a lie about her. Ah, said Joseph Flax, it does not fit, does it? Abraham, although he was the father of the faithful, yet was a sinner who needed to be justified by faith. But, my brethren, this refers to somebody, who is this man? Could it be our great lawgiver, Moses? No, no, they said, it cannot be Moses. He killed a man and hid him in the sand. Another added, and he lost his temper by the water of Meribah. Well, Joseph Flax said, My brethren, who is it? There is some man here that the Spirit of God is bringing before us. Could it be our great King David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, who perhaps wrote this psalm? No, no, they cried, it cannot be David. He committed adultery and had Uriah slain. Well, he said, who is it, to whom do these words refer? They were quiet for some little time and then one Jew arose and said, My brethren, I have a little book here, it is called the New Testament. I have been reading it. If I believed this book, if I could be sure that it is true, I would say that the man of the first psalm was Jesus of Nazareth. An old Jew got right up and said, My brethren, the man of the first psalm is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the only one who ever went through this world who never walked in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stood in the way of sinners. Then the old man told how he had been brought to believe in Christ, and he took that occasion to openly confess his faith. He had been searching for a long time and had found out sometime before that Jesus was the one, but he had not had the courage to tell others. Encouragement to Pray and all things, whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive, Matt 21-22. A number of years ago it was my privilege to attend a Bible conference at which the late Dr. D. E. M. Stearns was the main speaker. On one particular occasion he had a question hour, and, among the questions there was one that I never forgot. It read something like this, if you had prayed all your life for the salvation of a loved one, and then you got word that that person had died without giving any evidence of repentance after having lived a sinful life, what would you think, both of prayer itself and of the love of God and His promises to answer? It was a very striking question and I know that everyone in the room sat up and wondered what the doctor would have to say in reply to it. He said, well, dear sister, I should expect to meet that loved one in heaven, for I believe in a God who answers prayer and if he put that exercise upon your heart to pray for that dear one, it was because he, doubtless, intended to answer it. Then he told a story. Many years ago there was a dear old lady living in Philadelphia who had a very wayward son. This young man had been brought up in church and Sunday school, but he had drifted away from everything holy. He had gone to sea and had become a very rough, careless, godless sailor. One night his mother was awakened with a very deep sense of need upon her heart. When fully awake, she thought of her son and she was impressed that he was in great danger, as a result carrot she got up three threw on a dressing gown, knelt by her bedside, and prayed earnestly that God would undertake for the boy, whatever his need was. She didn't understand it, but after praying for perhaps two or three hours there came to her a sense of rest and peace, and she felt sure in her heart that God had answered. She got back into bed and slept soundly until the morning. Day after day she kept wondering to herself why she was thus awakened and moved to prayer, but somehow or other she could not feel the need to pray for that boy anymore, rather she praised God for something which she felt sure he had done for her son. Several weeks passed. One day there was a knock at the door. When she went to the door, there stood her boy. As soon as he entered the room, he said, Mother, I'm saved. Then he told her a wonderful story. He told how a few weeks earlier, his ship had been tossed in mid-Atlantic by a terrific storm, and it looked as though there were no hope of riding it through. One of the masts had snapped, 
the captain called the men to come and cut it away. They stepped out, he among them, cursing and reviling God because they had to be out in such an awful night. They were cutting away this mast when suddenly the ship gave a lurch, and a great wave caught this young man and carried him overboard. As he struggled almost helplessly with the great waves of the sea, the awful thought came to him, I'm lost forever. Suddenly, he remembered a hymn that he had often heard sung in his boyhood days, There is life in a look at the crucified one, there is life at this moment for thee, then look, sinner, look unto him and be saved, unto him who is nailed to the tree. He cried out in agony of heart, O, oh, God, I look, I look to Jesus. Then he was carried to the top of the waves and lost consciousness. Hours afterwards when the storm had ceased and the men came out to clear the deck, they found him lying unconscious, crowded up against a bulwark. Evidently, while one wave had carried him off the deck, another had carried him back again. The sailors took him into the cabin and gave him restoratives. When he came to, the first words from his lips were, Thank God, I'm saved. From that time on he had an assurance of God's salvation that meant everything to him. Then his mother told him how she had prayed for him that night. They realized that it was just at the time when he was in such desperate circumstances, and God had heard and answered. Now suppose that that young man's body had never been brought back to the ship. Suppose he had sunk down into the depths. People might have thought he was lost forever in his sin, but he would have been as truly saved as he actually was. God had permitted him to come back in testimony of his wonderful grace. A Negro Preacher on Missions I mean not that other men be eased, and ye burdened, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 13. We often hear it said by short-sighted Christians that the work at home is likely to suffer if the church pays too much attention to missions and missionary giving. This has been disproved over and over again. A colored preacher was taking an offering for missions when a close-handed deacon in his congregation called. Preacher, you is gwine to kill this church EF you keeps on taking up money for missions. Brother, was the reply, let me tell you something. Churches don't die that way. And EF you ever can show me a church what died of giving to missions, I'll go out and climb upon the ruins of dat church in delight of de moon and preach on de text breast in the dead what dies in de laud. The Preacher and Fried Chicken Look not every man on his own things but every man also on the things of others, Phil, 2 colon 4. I have never been able to forget a story I heard evangelist Paul Rader relate on one occasion. I may not now be able to recall all the details, but so nearly as I remember, it was as follows. Mr. Rader mentioned having known three ministers, all of whom came from a particular part of the South and were all characterized by a spirit of intense self-abnegation and kindly interest in the needs of others. To one of these Mr. Raider said, I have known two other men from your part of the country and you have all commended yourselves to me by your unselfishness. How come that you are all so much alike? Modestly the preacher answered, If we have any such marks as you speak of, we owe our unselfishness to a circuit rider. When we were just boys he used to come to our section every two weeks. He then went on to describe him as a lean, cadaverous-looking man of the Abraham Lincoln type who, on the first Sunday he preached in the country schoolhouse, gave a sermon in the morning and another in the afternoon. Between the services the ladies of the congregation served a picnic lunch in the open air. Great platters of fried chicken, ham, and other meats were laid out on gleaming white tablecloths, these were surrounded by stacks of biscuits, corn pone, hard-boiled eggs, cakes and other delicacies. When all was ready, the assembled group sat down on the greensward to enjoy the repast. A number of lively boys were always at the front, hoping to get nearest to the platter of chicken. But on this particular occasion, so great was the crowd, the boys were told to wait until their elders were all served. Angrily they went off back of a nearby shed and indulged in the pastime of shooting dice, in revenge for the unkind way they felt they had been treated. They appointed one lad as a watcher, to keep tab on the way the viands were disappearing. Ruefully, he told of piles of chicken disappearing, still, more came in from nearby wagons. Suddenly, in great excitement he exclaimed, Say, look at that preacher. The old squirrel. He's eaten all he could and now when he thinks no one sees him, he's filling those big pockets in the tail of his long coat. All looked angrily and saw it was indeed true. 
Just then one of the women exclaimed, Why, look at the preacher's plate. You all are neglecting him. Hand over the fried chicken. And she heaped his plate up with appetizing pieces, he nibbled a few minutes, then surreptitiously took two bandana handkerchiefs out of each breast pocket and, filling them with select pieces, stored them away. Rising with the rest, the preacher backed off, as the boys thought, to hide his loot in his baggage. But after moving away from the crowd he turned, and hurried down to the back of the barn where the angry boys were waiting for the second call to lunch. Boys, he exclaimed, I was afraid they were forgetting you, so I saved a lot of the white meat and the drumsticks for you. Out came the four clean handkerchiefs, and he passed the tender morsels around. The boys were captured. Amazed, they eagerly accepted the proffered dainties. This was characteristic of that preacher, said Mr. Raider's friend. We felt we had found a real friend, a man who loved other people better than he loved himself. He could do anything with us. He led us all to Christ during the years of his ministry among U.S., sent several out as foreign missionaries, and we three into the ministry at home. It was the unselfish spirit he manifested that gripped our hearts and won our confidence, so that his sermons reached our consciences and brought us to know his Savior as ours. Milk Your Own Cow As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby, 1 Peter 2 verse 2. Patrick was an Irish Catholic, who for years had longed for the assurance of peace with God. A visiting tourist, who fell into conversation with him, left him a copy of the New Testament, the Douay version, approved by the officials of his church. Through reading this, Pat was brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and from that time on, read and studied his testament with eagerness, ever seeking a deeper knowledge of the things of God. The parish priest, who had missed him from the regular services, called on him and found him deep in the study of the Word. Pat, he asked, what is that book you are reading? Sure, your reverence, was the reply, it's the New Testament. In horrified accents the priest exclaimed, the New Testament. Why, Pat, that's not a book for the likes of you. You'll be getting all kinds of wild notions from reading it and will be running off into heresy. But, your reverence, remonstrated Pat, I have just been reading here, it's the blessed apostle Peter himself that wrote it as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, and sure it's a newborn babe in Christ I am and it's the milk of the word I'm after. So I can't see the harm of reading the testament. Ah, said the priest, it's perfectly true, Patrick, that you need the milk of the word, but the Almighty has appointed the clergy to be the milkman. The clergy go to the college and the seminary and learn the meaning of the word and then when the people come to the church we give it to them as they are able to bear it, and explain it in a way that they won't misunderstand. Well, sure, your reverence, said Pat, you know I cape a cow of me own out there in the barn, and when I was sick, some time ago, I had to hire a man to milk the cow and I soon found he was stealing half the milk and filling the bucket up with water, and sure it was awful weak milk I was getting. But now that I am well again I have let him go and I am milking me own cow and so it's the rich cream I am getting once more. And your reverence, when I was dependent on you for the milk of the word, sure it was the blue, watery stuff you were giving me. But now I am milking me own cow and enjoying the cream of the word all the time. We may well emulate Patrick and each for himself milk his own cow and thus get God's word firsthand as he opens it up by the Holy Spirit. The Two Natures the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other. Galatians 5 verse 17. An American Indian was giving his testimony in a gathering of Christian members of his tribe. He told of his conversion and of how in the beginning he felt as though he would never sin again, he was so happy in knowing his Savior. But, he explained, as time went on he became conscious of an inward conflict, which he described somewhat as follows. It seems, my brothers, that I have two dogs fighting in my heart, one is a very good dog, a beautiful white dog, and he is always watching out for my best interests. The other is a very bad dog, a black dog, who is always trying to destroy the things that I want to see built up. These dogs give me a lot of trouble because they are always quarreling and fighting with each other. One of his hearers looked up and asked laconically, which one wins? The other instantly replied, whichever one I say sick him to. Surely there could not be a more apt illustration of the two natures in the believer. 
If we walk in the Spirit, we shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But if we pander to the flesh, we will be certain to go down in defeat. Honor to whom honor is due. Be not ye called Rabbi, Matt 23,8. In honor, preferring one another, Romans 12, verse 10. On one occasion, when in London, I was walking home from a meeting, part of the way I was accompanied by the Marquis of Aberdeen, who had presided, and the Lord Bishop of Norwich, who had been one of the speakers. Being an American and unaccustomed to titles, I felt embarrassed as to how I should address men of their position. I expressed my perplexity, and the Marquis replied, My dear brother, just address us as your brethren in Christ. We could have no higher honor than that. This was surely to enter into the spirit of what the Lord Jesus taught. We are told to give honor to whom honor is due. On the other hand, the servant of Christ is to seek the honor that cometh from God only. The first passage delivers from rudeness and that pride which apes humility, as it refuses to recognize the gifts which Christ has given to his church. The other is a rebuke to all self-seeking and fleshly ostentation on the part of those to whom the Lord has entrusted any special ministry for the edification of his church. Washing out the scent. Some men they follow after, 1 Timothy 5 verse 24. A Scotsman, the name of Robert, the Bruce, always brings a quickening of the heartstrings as he contemplates the recorded exploits of that heroic personality. I remember well how my young heart was stirred as I read the story of that Scottish chief and liberator, we are told that on one occasion, Bruce was hiding in a mountain glen from King Edward's soldiers. Suddenly he heard the baying of hounds upon the scent, and he recognized them as his own pack which the English had loosed and set upon their master's trail. Though worn with sleepless nights and foodless days, Bruce struggled to his feet and ran as fast as his weary limbs could carry him, with the hounds hot on his track. Nearer and nearer came the sound of baying, and the royal fugitive was almost in despair when he suddenly heard the trickling of a mountain rill. He hastened on and leaped into the stream and down through the waters he sped. Soon he heard the hounds at the brookside. They were barking excitedly as they ran hither and thither, unable to find the scent. Bruce successfully eluded his enemies because the running water made it impossible for the hounds to follow any further. Surely this is a picture of the gospel. There is but one way by which any man can escape the judgment of God. That is to plunge into the stream that flows from Calvary's hill, where our blessed Lord made peace by the blood of his cross. Divine wrath will never reach you there. All sin stains are washed away and there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. It was Bruce's own hounds that were tracking him down. Our own sins follow after us, calling for judgment, but the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Satisfaction in Christ Ye have learned, in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content, Phil 4.11. Christ is enough to satisfy the hearts of all who confide in Him and who leave everything in His hands. Such need never be cast down by seeming misfortunes. A Christian asked another how he was getting along. Dolefully his friend replied, Oh, fairly well, under the circumstances. I am sorry, exclaimed the other, that you are under the circumstances. The Lord would have us living above all circumstances, where he himself can satisfy our hearts and meet our every need for time and eternity. On top of the beer barrel. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, Romans 6 verse 21. Many years ago, when I was a young Salvation Army officer, it was my privilege to participate in a most unique service at a wide street intersection in the heart of the city of San Diego, California. We had among our adherents a lovely Christian girl who was saved out of a very ungodly family. Her father was a saloonkeeper and, while kind to his family and in many respects an admirable character, he had no use for religion, as he called it, nor for the church. But, through the consistent life of his daughter, he was at last awakened to see his need of a savior. He realized that she had something of which he knew nothing, and one night we were all surprised to see him in our audience. At the close of the service, he came forward, weeping, to confess his sins and seek Christ as his savior. We pointed him to the Lord and before the meeting closed, he was rejoicing in the knowledge of sins forgiven. 
At once he was faced with the fact that the business in which he was engaged was utterly inconsistent with the Christian life. Some suggested that he should sell out and put the proceeds into some other business. He indignantly spurned the suggestion. Realizing that the saloon was a detriment to humanity, he said he could not, since he had accepted Christ as his Savior and his Lord, allow himself to profit in any way from the stock of what he afterwards called liquid damnation. Instead of this, he went to the city authorities and got a permit for what some might have thought was a rather fantastic service. At the intersection of four streets, near his saloon, he rolled out all the beer barrels and made of them quite a pyramid. The Salvation Army surrounded this rather remarkable spectacle and with band playing and Salvationists singing, soon attracted an immense crowd. The converted saloonkeeper had boxes full of liquor piled up by the pyramid, to the top of which he climbed. Praise God, he exclaimed as he began his testimony, I am on top of the beer barrel. For years I used to be under its power, but now I can preach on its head. Then he told the story of his own conversion and pleaded with sinners to come to his Savior. As the liquor bottles were passed up to him, he broke them and spilled their contents over the barrels. Then descending, he set fire to the whole pyramid which went up in a great blaze as the song of the Lord continued. What a remarkable testimony to the power of the gospel of Christ to completely change a life. No longer a saloonkeeper, our friend went into a legitimate business, where his life was a bright testimony to the reality of God's salvation. Read Ezekiel 7 verses 8 and 9. He, that being often reproved hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy, Proverbs 29 verse 1. The following incident is vouched for by a Church of England clergyman who knew all the circumstances. A young woman, who had been brought up in a Christian home and who had often had very serious convictions in regard to the importance of coming to Christ, chose instead to take the way of the world. Much against the wishes of her godly mother, she insisted on keeping company with a wild, hilarious crowd, who lived only for the passing moment and tried to forget the things of eternity. Again and again she was pleaded with to turn to Christ, but she persistently refused to heed the admonitions addressed to her. Finally, she was taken with a very serious illness. All that medical science could do for her was done in order to bring about her recovery, but it soon became evident that the case was hopeless and death was staring her in the face. Still she was hard and obdurate when urged to turn to God in repentance and take the lost sinner's place and trust the lost sinner's Savior. One night she awoke suddenly out of a sound sleep, a frightened look in her eyes, and asked excitedly, Mother, what is Ezekiel 7 verses 8 and 9? Her mother said, What do you mean, my dear? She replied that she had had a most vivid dream. She thought there was a presence in the room, who very solemnly said to her, Read Ezekiel 7 verses 8 and 9. Not recalling the verses in question, the mother reached for a Bible. As she opened it, her heart sank as she saw the words, but she read them aloud to the dying girl. Now I will shortly pour out my fury upon thee, and accomplish mine anger upon thee, and I will judge thee according to thy ways, and will recompense thee for all thine abominations. And mine I shall not spare, neither will I have pity, I will recompense thee according to thy ways and thine abominations that are in the midst of thee, and ye shall know that I am the Lord that smitteth. The poor sufferer, with a look of horror on her face, sank back on the pillow, utterly exhausted, and in a few moments she was in eternity. Once more it had been demonstrated that grace rejected brings judgment at last. The Lord's Spectacles We are made a spectacle, to angels and to men, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 9. One of the colored students of the Southern Bible Training School of Dallas, Texas, was praying and besought the Lord as follows, O Lord, please keep your spectacles clean so that sinners can see you through us, cause you know, Lord, we are your spectacles. He did not know that the original word theatron means a show or display, but supposed it referred to eyeglasses. How we all need to remember that unsaved men can only see Christ through us, and if our lives are unclean, the vision of the Savior will be blurred. Accepted in the Beloved He hath made us accepted in the Beloved, Ephesians 1 verse 6. Years ago I was preaching in the small town of Roosevelt, Washington, on the north bank of the Columbia River. I was the guest of friends who were sheep raisers. It was lambing time and every morning we went out to see the lambs, hundreds of them, playing about on the green.
One morning I was startled to see an old you go loping across the road, followed by the strangest-looking lamb I had ever beheld. It apparently had six legs, and the last two were hanging helplessly as though paralyzed, and the skin seemed to be partially torn from its body in a way that made me feel the poor little creature must be suffering terribly. But when one of the herders caught the lamb and brought it over to me, the mystery was explained. That lamb did not really belong originally to that you. She had a lamb which was bitten by a rattlesnake and died. This lamb that I saw was an orphan and needed a mother's care. But at first the bereft you refused to have anything to do with it. She sniffed at it when it was brought to her, then pushed it away, saying as plainly as a sheep could say it, that is not our family odor. So the herder skinned the lamb that had died and very carefully drew the fleece over the living lamb. This left the hind leg coverings dragging loose. Thus covered, the lamb was brought again to the ewe. She smelled it once more and this time seemed thoroughly satisfied and adopted it as her own. It seemed to me to be a beautiful picture of the grace of God to sinners. We are all outcasts and have no claim upon his love. But God's own Son, the Lamb of God, that taketh away the sin of the world, has died for us and now we who believe are dressed up in the fleece of the Lamb who died. Thus, God has accepted us in him, and there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. We are as dear to the heart of the Father as his own holy, spotless Son. So dear, so very dear to God. More dear I cannot be. The love wherewith he loves his Son. Such is his love to me. So near, so very near to God. Nearer I could not be. For in the person of his Son, I am as near as he. Standing where the fire has been. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2 verse 20. One of the first gospel illustrations that ever made a real impression upon my young heart was a simple story which I heard a preacher tell when I was less than nine years old. It was of pioneers who were making their way across one of the central states to a distant place that had been opened up for homesteading. They traveled in covered wagons drawn by oxen, and progress was necessarily slow. One day they were horrified to note a long line of smoke in the west, stretching for miles across the prairie, and soon it was evident that the dried grass was burning fiercely and coming toward them rapidly. They had crossed a river the day before, but it would be impossible to go back to that before the flames would be upon them. One man only seemed to have understanding as to what should be done. He gave the command to set fire to the grass behind them. Then when a space was burned over, the whole company moved back upon it. As the flames roared on toward them from the west, a little girl cried out in terror, Are you sure we shall not all be burned up? The leader replied, My child, the flames cannot reach us here, for we are standing where the fire has been. What a picture of the believer, who is safe in Christ! On him almighty vengeance fell, which would have sunk a world to hell. He bore it for a chosen race, and thus becomes our hiding place. The fires of God's judgment burned themselves out on him, and all who are in Christ are safe forever, for they are now standing where the fire has been. A Victim of Wrong Information Though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto. Let him be accursed, Galatians 1 verse 8. I remember reading a story of a woman who with her little babe was traveling by train through one of the northeastern states. It was a very wintry day. Outside a terrific storm was blowing, snow was falling, and sleet covered everything. The train made its way along slowly because of the ice on the tracks and the snowplow went ahead to clear the way. The woman seemed very nervous. She was to get off at a small station, where she would be met by some friends, and she said to the conductor, You will be sure and let me know the right station, won't you? Certainly, he said, just remain here until I tell you the right station. She sat rather nervously and again spoke to the conductor, you won't forget me? No, just trust me. I will tell you when to get off. A commercial man sat across the aisle. He leaned over and said, pardon me, but I see you are rather nervous about getting off at your station. I know this road well. Your station is the first stop after such and such a city. These conductors are very forgetful, they have a great many things to attend to, 
and he may overlook your request, but I will see that you get off all right. I will help you with your baggage. Oh, thank you, she said. And she leaned back greatly relieved. By and by the brakeman called the name of the city the commercial traveler had mentioned, and the latter said to the woman, Yours is the next station. Better get ready and I will assist you to get off. The train moved on and shortly afterwards came to a full stop. The woman hurried to the end of the car, the man who was helping her carrying her bag. When they reached the vestibule, there was no one there. You see, said the stranger, these trainmen are very careless. The conductor has quite forgotten you. But he opened the door, assisted the woman with her baby down the steps, and just as he boarded the train again it moved on. A few minutes later the conductor came through the train and looking all about, said, Why, that is strange. There was a woman here who wanted to get off at the next station, I wonder where she is. The commercial man spoke up and said, Yes, you forgot her, but I saw that she got off all right. Got off where, the conductor asked. When the train stopped. But that was not a station. That was an emergency stop. I was looking after that woman. Why, man, you have put her off in a wild country district in the midst of all this storm, where there will be nobody to meet her. There was only one thing to do, and, although it was a rather dangerous thing, they had to reverse the engine and go back a number of miles, and then went out to look for the woman. They searched and searched, finally, somebody stumbled upon her body. She was frozen on the ground, her little babe dead in her arms. She was the victim of wrong information. If, if it is such a serious thing to give people wrong information in regard to temporal things, what about the man who misleads men and women in regard to the great question of the salvation of their immortal souls? If men believe a false gospel, if they put their trust in something that is contrary to the word of God, their loss will be not for time only, but for eternity. Cobbling for the glory of God do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, Colossians 3 verse 17. When I was a boy, I felt it was both a duty and a privilege to help my widowed mother make ends meet by finding employment in vacation time, on Saturdays and other times when I did not have to be in school. For quite a while I worked for a Scottish shoemaker, or cobbler, as he preferred to be called, an Orkney man, named Dan McKay. He was a forthright Christian and his little shop was a real testimony for Christ in the neighborhood. The walls were literally covered with Bible texts and pictures, generally taken from old-fashioned scripture sheet almanacs, so that look where one would, he found the Word of God staring him in the face. There were John 3 verse 16 and John 5 verse 24, Romans 10 verse 9, and many more. On the little counter in front of the bench on which the owner of the shop sat was a Bible, generally open, and a pile of gospel tracts. No package went out of that shop without a printed message wrapped inside. And whenever opportunity offered, the customers were spoken to kindly and tactfully about the importance of being born again and the blessedness of knowing that the soul is saved through faith in Christ. Many came back to ask for more literature or to inquire more particularly as to how they might find peace with God, with the blessed results that men and women were saved, frequently right in the shoe shop. It was my chief responsibility to pound leather for shoe soles. A piece of cowhide would be cut to suit, then soaked in water. I had a flat piece of iron over my knees and, with a flat-headed hammer, I pounded these soles until they were hard and dry. It seemed an endless operation to me, and I wearied of it many times. What made my task worse was the fact that, a block away, there was another shop that I passed going and coming to or from my home, and in it sat a jolly, godless cobbler who gathered the boys of the neighborhood about him and regaled them with lewd tales that made him dreaded by respectable parents as a menace to the community. Yet, somehow, he seemed to thrive and that perhaps to a greater extent than my employer, McKay. As I looked in his window, I often noticed that he never pounded the soles at all, but took them from the water, nailed them on, damp as they were and with the water splashing from them as he drove each nail in. One day I ventured inside, something I had been warned never to do. Timidly, I said, I notice you put the soles on while still wet. Are they just as good as if they were pounded? He gave me a wicked leer as he answered, They come back all the quicker this way, my boy. Feeling I had learned something, 
I related the instance to my boss and suggested that I was perhaps wasting time in drying out the leather so carefully. Mr. McKay stopped his work and opened his Bible to the passage that reads, Whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Harry, he said, I do not cobble shoes just for the four bits or six bits, 50c or 75c, that I get from my customers. I am doing this for the glory of God. I expect to see every shoe I have ever repaired in a big pile at the judgment seat of Christ, and I do not want the Lord to say to me in that day, Dan, this was a poor job. You did not do your best here. I want him to be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Then he went on to explain that just as some men are called to preach, so he was called to fix shoes, and that only as he did this well would his testimony count for God. It was a lesson I have never been able to forget. Often when I have been tempted to carelessness and to slipshod effort, I have thought of dear, devoted Dan McKay, and it has stirred me up to seek to do all as for him who died to redeem me. Blind Leaders of the Blind If the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch, Matt 15:14. On one occasion Colonel Robert G. Ingersoll, the agnostic lecturer of the last century, was announced to give an address on hell. He declared he would prove conclusively that hell was a wild dream of some scheming theologians who invented it to terrify credulous people. As he was launching into his subject, a half-drunken man arose in the audience and exclaimed, Make it strong, Bob. There's a lot of us poor fellows depending on you. If you are wrong, we are all lost. So be sure you prove it clear and plain. No amount of reasoning can nullify God's sure word. He has spoken as plainly of a hell for the finally impenitent as of a heaven for those who are saved. Law and Grace We are not under the law, but under grace, Romans 6 verse 15. Some years ago, I had a little school for young Indian men and women who came to my home in Oakland, California, from the various tribes in northern Arizona. One of these was a Navajo young man of unusually keen intelligence. One Sunday evening, he went with me to our young people's meeting. They were talking about the epistle to the Galatians, and the special subject was law and grace. They were not very clear about it, and finally one turned to the Indian and said, I wonder whether our Indian friend has anything to say about this. He rose to his feet and said, Well, my friends, I have been listening very carefully, because I am here to learn all I can in order to take it back to my people. One do not understand all that you are talking about, and I do not think you do yourselves. But concerning this law and grace business, let me see if I can make it clear. I think it is like this. When Mr. Ironside brought me from my home we took the longest railroad journey I ever took. We got out at Barstow, and there I saw the most beautiful railroad station and hotel I have ever seen. I walked all around and saw at one end a sign, Do not spit here. I looked at that sign and then looked down at the ground and saw many had spitted there, and before I think what I am doing I have spitted myself. Isn't that strange when the signs say, Do not spit here? I come to Oakland and go to the home of the lady who invited me to dinner today and I am in the nicest home I have ever been in. Such beautiful furniture and carpets, I hate to step on them. I sank into a comfortable chair, and the lady said, Now, John, you sit there while I go out and see whether the maid has dinner ready. I look around at the beautiful pictures, at the grand piano, and I walk all around those rooms. I am looking for a sign, the sign I am looking for is, do not spit here, but I look around those two beautiful drawing rooms, and cannot find a sign like this. I think, what a pity when this is such a beautiful home to have people spitting all over it, too bad they don't put up a sign. So I look all over that carpet, but cannot find that anybody have spitted there. What a queer thing. Where the sign says, do not spit, a lot of people spitted. Where there was no sign at all, in that beautiful home, nobody spitted. Now I understand. That sign is law, but inside the home it is grace. They love their beautiful home, and they want to keep it clean. They do not need a sign to tell them so. I think that explains the law and grace business. As he sat down, a murmur of approval went round the room and the leader exclaimed, I think that is the best illustration of law and grace I have ever heard. The Gift of God The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, Romans 6 verse 23. You cannot earn a gift. 
it would cease to be a gift if it were purchased with money, or paid for, in whole or in part, in any other way. Years ago, a wealthy lady in New York built a beautiful church. On the day of dedication her agent came up from the audience to the platform and handed the deed of the property to the Episcopal Bishop of New York. The bishop gave the agent one dollar for the deed, and by virtue of the one dollar, which was acknowledged, the property was turned over to the Episcopal Church. You say, what a wonderful gift! Yes, in a certain sense it was, for the passing over of one dollar was simply a legal observance. But after all, in the full Bible sense it was not a gift, for it cost one dollar, and so the deed was made out, not as a deed of gift, but as a deed of sale. It was sold to the Episcopal Church for one dollar. If you had to do one thing in order to be saved, if you had even to raise your hand, to stand to your feet, had but to say one word, it would not be a gift. You could say, I did thus and so, and in that way earned my salvation. But this priceless blessing is absolutely free. If by grace, then is it no more of works, otherwise grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then is it no more grace, otherwise work is no more work, Romans 11 verse 6. That is what the Spirit of God tells us in the Word. The New Man Whosoever is born of God doth not commit, that is, practice, sin, for his seed remaineth in him and he cannot sin, because he is born of God, 1 John 3 verse 9. It is the grace of God working in the soul that makes the believer delight in holiness, in righteousness, in obedience to the will of God, for real joy is found in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember a man who lived a life of gross sin. After his conversion, one of his old friends said to him, Bill, I pity you, a man that has been such a high flyer as you. And now you have settled down, you go to church, or stay at home and read the Bible and pray, you never have good times anymore. But, Bob, said the man, you don't understand. I get drunk every time I want to. I go to the theater every time I want to. I go to the dance when I want to. I play cards and gamble whenever I want to. I say, Bill, said his friend, I didn't understand it that way. I thought you had to give up these things to be a Christian. No, Bob, said Bill, the Lord took the wando out when he saved my soul and he made me a new creature in Christ Jesus. When we are born of God we receive a new life and that life has its own new nature, a nature that hates sin and impurity and delights in holiness and goodness. The Wrong Remedy They have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace, Jeremiah 8 verse 11. When I was a boy, I heard a North of Ireland preacher relate the following story which he declared to be absolutely authentic. It is a striking illustration of the lack of understanding of spiritual problems prevalent in some quarters, even in our enlightened days. In a Scottish home the younger son, a lad in his late teens, named Robert, generally Robbie in the family, became troubled about his soul. Realizing he was a lost sinner, he sought in vain for someone who could make plain to him the way of peace with God. His father, though a religious man and an esteemed office-bearer in the local kirk, could not understand why a lad brought up as his son had been should think himself lost and in need of salvation. In his distress the boy sought out the minister, who after a long talk with him told him he should put away such gloomy thoughts and try to get his mind on brighter things. As the youth was musically inclined, the pastor suggested to the father to purchase a fiddle for his son and have him take violin lessons. This was done, but although Robbie tried to forget his gloomy ideas, as the minister called them, and resolutely set himself to learn to play the fiddle, he at last gave up in despair. I cannot fiddle, he exclaimed, when I am lost in my sins and may die any moment and go into hell because I cannot find how to be saved. A physician was called in, who, after examining the boy, advised that he be sent to a sanitarium for mental cases, as he felt sure he was losing his mind, and if not properly treated, might do something desperate. So to the asylum, the poor lad was taken. There for weeks he paced a narrow room in anguish of soul, as he exclaimed again and again, Oh, that I knew how to get rid o' my sins. One day, a lady who knew Christ came to that institution in order to help and comfort a friend of hers who had suffered a nervous breakdown. As she passed the room of poor Robbie she heard his sobs and wondered if it was a case of conviction of sin rather than incipient insanity. 
She was given an opportunity to speak with him and, after hearing his story, she pointed him to Christ and left with him a New Testament, marking several passages, which she asked him to read carefully. As he pondered these verses, telling of Christ's finished work and the blood that cleanseth from all sin, light from heaven shone into his darkened soul and soon he was rejoicing in God's salvation. The change in his behavior was so notable that the attending alienist decided he was cured by the treatment received, and he notified the father that Robbie might now safely be taken home. His brother James came for him and was delighted to find Robbie so calm and peaceful. Little was said until he arrived at home, when, in response to his anxious father's question, Are ye a right no Robbie, he exclaimed, I, Father, I'm a right no for my sins are gone and my soul is saved. The shocked father cried out aghast, Jamie, gang for the minister. Tell him Robbie's had a relapse, and to come at once. When the minister reached the house, Robbie greeted him somewhat sternly, Minister, minister, he exclaimed, why did you set me trying to fiddle my sins awa? Why did you no tell me of the blue-it owed Jesus that cleanses fray a sin? What the fiddling could not do, the Lord Jesus has done for me. The embarrassed minister soon realized a work of God had taken place in the soul of the young man. Though he did not fathom it all, he understood enough to know it was what the Bible calls being born again, and so he assured the father he need not worry about his son's mentality. As the time went on, all knew that Robbie had indeed passed from death unto life and many were won to Christ through his testimony. It is to be feared there are many in our days who are as unable to help a troubled soul as was Robbie's pastor. Yet everyone who professes to be a minister of God should be an expert at dealing with anxious men and women and showing them the only way of life and peace through the gospel of His grace. A Lost Opportunity As thy servant was busy here and there, he was gone, 1 Kings 20 verse 40. Ambassador Wu Ting Fong was one of the most colorful oriental diplomats ever accredited to Washington. He came as the representative of the Chinese Empire and for several years occupied that post in this country. When he was recalled to China, it was announced that he would leave for his native land from New York City at a given date. Noticing that he would be in the metropolis over the Lord's Day, the pastor of the Chinese church on the east side sent him a polite letter inviting him to attend one of their services on that occasion. The ambassador replied at once. In his letter he told how, when he first came to America, he had been intensely interested in the Christian religion, as he felt that it was in some very definite way the real source of the enlightened civilization of this great country. He said he then and there made up his mind that he would never refuse an invitation to attend a Christian service, if it were at all possible for him to accept. I have been in this country six years, he wrote, and yours is the first such invitation I have ever received. What a tragic commentary on the indifference of Christians to the need of those who are strangers to the gospel. Who can weigh aright the guilt of Christians who were acquainted with this great statesman and never once attempted to win him for Christ? Let us all remember the admonition, redeeming the time, buying up opportunities, for the days are evil. Example of New Birth Ophi's own will begot he us with the word of truth, James 1 verse 18. The folly of supposing that anyone can be saved by the power of a great example comes out clearly in an incident related on one occasion by Dr. Joseph Parker, then pastor of the City Temple, London, England. Paderewski, the great Polish pianist, had given a concert that day in the city, and at night, addressing a large congregation, Dr. Parker spoke somewhat as follows. I have had today most forcibly presented to me the folly of trusting in the power of a great example. Many of you know that I have always been a lover of music and some of my friends have been kind enough to try to make me believe that I had some talent as a pianist. It has often been my delight, when weary of other things, to sit down at my piano and play some of the classical selections, or improvise, according to my mood. But today a friend took me to hear that great master of the piano, Paderewski. For two hours I sat enthralled, listening to music such as I had never heard in all my life before. When the last lovely note was struck and the applause had died away, I felt I wanted to slip out quietly, speaking to no one, with the thrill of it still stirring my soul. An hour or so later, I was standing before my piano, when I was summoned for dinner. At first I did not hear the summons and when my wife came to me, I turned to her and said, almost savagely, I am afraid, bring me an axe. She looked at me anxiously and asked, my dear, what do you mean? 
I said, you know I have always thought I was something of a pianist, but I have heard real music today for the first time and I realize now that what I thought was musical talent amounts to nothing. I feel like chopping my piano all to pieces. I never want to touch it again. That was the effect of a great example upon my mind. I know that I shall overcome this and I shall soon enjoy my piano as I did in the past, but I realize then, and I realize now, that no example, such as that of Paderewski, could ever make a great musician of me. In order to play as he played, one must have the soul of a Paderewski. To try to imitate him would be folly. And so it is in regard to the matter of our salvation. It is true that Christ has left us an example that we should follow his steps, but before we can do that, we need to receive the Spirit of Christ, we must be born again. There must be the very life of Christ communicated to us. Dr. Parker was right. No one can ever be saved by attempting to follow Christ's example. It is absolutely fundamental that we first be born again. An arrow shot at a venture. Ye must be born again, John 3 verse 7. When Bishop John Taylor Smith, former Chaplain General of the British Army, was in this country at the time of the D. L. Moody Centenary Meetings, it was my privilege to hear him one noon hour in Christ Church, Indianapolis. The sanctuary was crowded with eager listeners, to whom the bishop spoke most solemnly, yet tenderly, upon the necessity of the new birth, using the text quoted above. As a telling illustration, he related the following incident. On one occasion, he told us, he was preaching in a large cathedral on this same text. In order to drive it home, he said, My dear people, do not substitute anything for the new birth. You may be a member of a church, even the great church of which I am a member, the historic Church of England, but church membership is not new birth, and except a man be born again he cannot see the kingdom of God. The rector was sitting at my left. Pointing to him, I said, You might be a clergyman like my friend the rector here and not be born again, and except a man be born again he cannot see the kingdom of God. On my left sat the archdeacon in his stall. Pointing directly at him, I said, you might even be an archdeacon like my friend in his stall and not be born again and except a man be born again he cannot see the kingdom of God. You might even be a bishop, like myself, and not be born again and except a man be born again he cannot see the kingdom of God. Then he went on to tell us that a day or so later he received a letter from the archdeacon, in which he wrote, My dear bishop, you have found me out. I have been a clergyman for over thirty years but I had never known anything of the joy that Christians speak of. I never could understand it. Mine has been hard, legal service. I did not know what was the matter with me, but when you pointed directly to me and said, you might even be an archdeacon and not be born again, I realized in a moment what the trouble was. I had never known anything of the new birth. He went on to say that he was wretched and miserable, had been unable to sleep all night, and begged for a conference, if the bishop could spare the time to talk with him. Of course, I could spare the time, said Bishop Smith, and the next day we got together over the word of God and after some hours we were both on our knees, the archdeacon taking his place before God as a poor, lost sinner and telling the Lord Jesus he would trust him as his Savior. From that time on everything has been different. It was a striking example of the absolute necessity of birth from above and of the sad possibility of being deceived with a false profession and going on for years not understanding one's true condition before God.